My incredible guest today is a notable name in the journalism industry. Samar Halankar is the founder of Article 14, a platform created to bring out the threats to and failures of justice and deficiencies in the legal system, as well as identify opportunities where we could build upon successes. He has previously worked with leading publications such as Times of India, Indian Express, Hindustan Times, and was also the editor of the digital platform India Spend. He has also written columns for the New York Times, The Globe, and Mail Canada. He is currently the editor at Article 14 and contributing writer for Mint. He, along with Priya Ramani and Nilofar Venkatraman, both journalists, created a platform known as India Love Project, which celebrates love and marriage outside the shackles of faith, caste, ethnicity, and gender. He is also the author of two books, Nirvana Under the Rain Tree, an early chronicle of India's internet revolution, and The Married Man's Guide to Creative Cooking and Other Dubious Adventures. Welcome to the show, Summer. It's such an honor to be talking to you today. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to begin uh, with the most fundamental question to you, Summer. So you've been a journalist for about three decades now, and I'm pretty sure that hasn't been easy. So can you tell me a little bit about what drove you towards journalism and how did your journey actually begin? Oh, gosh. Um, I think I um, entered journalism because I wasn't very good at anything else. <laughs> Um, seriously, um, that's one part of it, certainly. But, uh, you know, my father wanted me to join the civil services because he was a, a police officer and a very well, uh, well-known well and recognized one. Uh, so I did do the uh, civil services uh, preliminary exam and uh, I um, got through. Uh, but then I couldn't imagine myself being uh, uh, a civil servant, so I didn't uh, uh, prepare for the final exams. Then, you know, I prepared for some management exams uh, and I couldn't imagine myself selling soap either, okay. um, or, what, or whatever else. And I was kind of drifting to li- through life. I think I was doing working on a cost, a cost accountancy uh-huh. program. Um, and uh, that's when I saw this advertisement for the Times of India School of Journalism um, and, uh, in Delhi. Uh, and I applied and got in and that was it, essentially. So I was always interested in writing. Uh, I had been the editor of my uh, college uh, magazine, uh, which is an which is an exaggeration because it was basically about five or six cyclo style <laughs> sheets um, filled with things that uh, our principal did not like, yeah. uh, bad bad jokes and puns. Um, but I was always the editor of right. uh, the in, in, in the, uh, college annual magazine, the college, as I said, mm-hmm. this rag that used to go around as well. So I was always interested in writing. Yeah. Um, so when this opportunity came up and I got admission to the Times School of Journalism, which was a very good one in those days, um, uh, no, no, no surprise, later on it got converted to the Times School of Marketing. Uh-huh. Uh, but in those days, uh, we had um, a fantastic director called Thomas Uman. Um, a legendary director. In fact, many of uh, India's uh, uh, very well-known journalists have passed uh, through its doors. Um, uh, and that's where I uh, you know, cut my teeth uh, uh, on journalism. Uh, and after that, I was just kicked off the deep end uh, and I began my job as a crime reporter in the Times of India, Bangalore. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it just went on from there. As soon as I joined, I knew 
this is what I wanted to do. Awesome. So that actually was my, the next thing that I actually want to discuss with you, right? So you worked as a crime reporter in the 90s and, you know, I, I was doing some kind of research on, you know, what I was supposed to ask you and, you know, what are the things that I want to talk to you about? And that's when I discovered that you had actually covered the anti-Virapan operation at that point in time, right? So that was very intriguing and I wanted to know, like, you know, what was that like and are there any anecdotes that you could perhaps share on that? There are lots of anecdotes. Um, <laughs> sure. But let me begin by first telling you about Virapan himself. When um, there were two of us, actually, me and a colleague called Ravi Prasad, mm-hmm. uh, who covered uh, all Virapan stories. And in a sense, our stories were the first um, about Virapan. In fact, when we first, when we wrote the first story, um, you know, we used to wander around um, the offices, uh, police offices, talking to officers, etc., and it was a slow day and uh, an officer said, look, take a look at this dossier. He said it's about a sandalwood smuggler and a poacher uh, called okay. Virapan who had already killed some 25 forest officials, villagers and uh, yeah. poached at that point of time some 100 to 200 elephants. Um, mm-hmm. And we had never heard of him. He said Virapan. So we wrote up a small story that this guy is running around on the borders, on the forests of the, mm-hmm. on the borders of Tamil Nadu and Karnataka. And we gave it to our chief reporter who said, what the hell is this? Who the hell is Virappa? (laughs) And kept it aside for... So nobody knew at that point in time then? No, nobody knew about Virappa at that point of time. Uh, So that Uh story was kept on his desk for some time. And he ran it uh, one uh, slow news uh, weekend. He said, okay, there's nothing else. I might as well run your story. We ran it. And the next day, Virappa ambushed um, uh, a police patrol in Karnataka, killing some four police officers. And that in, immediately exploded into national and then uh, global prominence. Um, so since we had a head start on this, uh, you know, we used to keep, uh, we went there very often. Uh, and in those days, uh, you know, the, the Times of India and Bangalore was uh, uh, an operation which uh, did not either give um, much uh, salary or provide for uh, reporting assistance. So we used to travel by... Uh, state transport buses to those areas, which meant changing two buses, getting there. And then, of course, arriving by our wits and our contacts. Um, so we would go there and um, every report that was filed there um, uh, had to be, um, you know, sent by uh, teleprinter in those days. So we had to go down to find a postal office. They would The local uh, postal department would keep it open so we could use it. Then it would be sell by sent by teleprinter directly to our office here. Photographs would be would come on uh, state transport buses. Uh, the rolls would be handed over to uh, uh, drivers who would take it to the Mysore depot. From the Mysore depot, we tell them please hand it over to a driver taking a bus to Bangalore. Then uh, somebody would meet the bus in Bangalore, develop the rolls and things like that. Um, but the thing is, we had uh, the only photographic evidence of the of the operation that were going on against Virapan. So that was quite something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were also part of the first uh, uh, the first major drive into the forest because the forests uh, of the Satyamangalam Bargur ranges, as they were called, were yeah. off limits for mm-hmm. policemen and forest officials. This is where Virappan held sway for many years. So the first time they tried to break that hold was that there was a 2,000 strong force from Tamil Nadu as well as from Karnataka police and forest officials who headed in. So we were with that uh, with that initial party. 
and there was so much confused. Oh, with the, the police force who actually went into yeah, capture, yeah, like into the forest. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh-huh. it was headed by this um, uh, Tamil Nadu special police uh, uh, superintendent of police, and he had this so-called commando unit with him, and they led the way. And we went in because there were so many yeah. people and so much confusion. Nobody really knew uh, who we were at that point of time. So we just went along, and soon we realized we were with this, uh, you know, uh, with this special unit. right in front crawling along the forest etc and then suddenly there was this massive smell uh, after we wandered through many years we were uh, we were uh, going through the forest with an informant uh, and then okay. uh, near a cave for example he found lot of uh, porcupine quills and a and there clearly had been a fire there so you know we were up and knew mm-hmm. how to live off the land so they had eaten a porcupine right. i think the previous night there and after some time mm-hmm. there was this fabulous smell in the air and the smell of sandalwood Uh, and there was a lot mm-hmm. of tension among um, the, the the policemen we were we were with the main party was way behind but we were with a small unit in front and suddenly we came okay. upon a clearing and there was this um 15 foot high stack and huge enormous uh, mountain of sandalwood there obviously virappan had poached and they for the first time they reached there and then okay uh, and it was going to be transported maybe like small build out or whatever yeah this was his stack this was his main stack yeah. which nobody uh, had uh, ever reached before so that was a, the first mm-hmm. big blow to uh, virappan but of course it would be and then from a nearby hillside in defiance you know uh, he opened fire with he had these old bl- right. blunderbusses these ancient uh, uh, weapons which mm-hmm. he fired from the hillside only in defiance because they could never reach her so of course all these mm-hmm. policemen in defiance started firing machine guns at him so we were right there when all this happened um so there were a lot of uh, in that sense action for a young reporter in those days <laughs> now i'm just wondering like was it like just you know you being brave and just so courageous that you just went for this operation oh, or I... you then realized that oh my god i don't know what i've gotten myself into and then you know sort of came about <laughs> for that realization No, there was nothing. I don't think there was anything particularly brave about it because we were wandering okay. around with these uh, armed uh, armed men, and um, um, it yeah. was more adrenaline and just a, a you know a thrill <laughs> as young crime reporters at having reached a story that uh, nobody else had reached. Because there were no other reporters, there were just two of us um, and a photographer yeah. uh, who was uh, there. So it was just a thrill of getting the story that drove us on. I, <laughs> I don't. We, I don't think we ever. We, of course, sure, we were apprehensive. We were more apprehensive once in the forest when we were in one of these jeeps, uh, uh, and an elephant, yeah. um, a male elephant, mm-hmm. charged the jeep, and uh, that was the only <laughs> okay. scary time because uh, the driver <laughs> rammed it in reverse, okay. and the, office, the forest officer said, "Reverse, reverse, reverse," and we went back at high speed, uh, and fortunately, it was a mock charge. While we were recharging, of course, there was a policeman with us with a carbine. which misfired and mm-hmm. the bullet went through the roof so that was a, it oh. was a <laughs> there were interesting times let me put it that way but there was a, a lot, lot of uh, i should say yeah there was there was a lot of sorrow also because many of some of the police officers whom we got to know there um mm-hmm. uh, a couple of them were killed in ambushes later on by virappan uh okay. and yeah and one of them got blown up uh, in a landmine that mm-hmm. virappan and his gang had set um and there were a lot of brutalities on all sides uh, uh, every time mm-hmm. the first time we reached his native village of gopinatham deep in the in the jungle there was nobody there because everybody had fled because they knew that the police were coming and the police obviously had uh, you know there was a lot of um, 
uh, torture and um, high-handedness that they had done. Uh, one of right. the officers was called a chicken thief by Virapan because he would always come and, uh, you know, take chickens oh. from the villagers and cook them because everybody lived off the land. It was a very raw, frontier mm. kind of approach to justice. Um, and uh, there were no good guys and bad guys in that sense. Right. So, I mean, that's totally, I mean, I can't even imagine what that must have been like, but at least I still remember that I was in school and, you know, we used to mm-hmm. uh, sort of hear some of these things at that point in time and how these operations were carried out and what kind of destructions, you know, it ended up causing, right, uh, to people in general, right? Uh so, Summer, the next thing that uh, really intrigued me was that, you know, you founded Article 14 uh, to report how law is misused and also present, you know, how one could learn from the good things that have come about, right? And all this through intensive research and reportage, right? And, you know, based on data and varied perspectives. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your journey with Article 14 and what led you to create this powerful platform? So Article 14 was launched uh, year before last uh, by a bunch of us, uh, journalists, uh, lawyers, um, and academics uh, who, uh, um, who were concerned about how the law was being used or misused uh, in India. There was increasing evidence that was happening. So we aim, uh, aim to be a big clearinghouse of ideas, research, and reportage that will make use of the best academic, legal, and journalistic minds in the country. Uh, Our focus area, as I said, is the rule of law, um, and and the name comes from Article 14 of the Constitution. Um, So this, uh, um, it frees us from the constraints of traditional media, where every kind of public issue or event must be reported. Uh, We believe that the rule of law is a public good, and therefore we want to make the arcane accessible. In millennial digital terminology, we want discussions on justice, democracy, and the constitution to go viral. Mm -hmm. Um, Our core idea is to meld academic rigor with journalistic flair and uh, storytelling to, um, you know, spotlight threats to and failures of justice and deficiencies in the legal system. Mm -hmm. Um, By the same, uh, um, by the same yardstick, we'll also track successes that can perhaps be built on. Uh, So trends and patterns that we unearth uh, we hope to bring to the widest public attention and inform legal and judicial practitioners. And finally, of course, we are interested in the story of the people uh, behind the data. Right. So data and facts are a very big part of what mm-hmm. we do. We do not allow opinion or comment of any kind. Anything that is written has to be backed by data and, and by facts. I see. And that's why you say that you know, it has to be data-driven and there's so much of research that goes on, right? You know, with every article that actually gets put out on Article 14, right? Okay. So, yes. So, yes, it has to be based on sound research. Mm -hmm. It must relay data and not opinion. And, uh, you know, we hope to be uh, accessible to both uh, lay audiences and specialized uh, audiences. Sure. So, I want to now talk to you a little bit about uh, India Love Project, right? Um, So... Yeah. You know, whenever I think of, say, marriage or, you know, someone is like being a partner to someone, it's definitely like a sensitive topic. And, uh, you know, we've all, I think, witnessed that not everybody ends up marrying uh, just for love or are in a relationship for that matter. Right. So there is some sort of policing yeah. that we always see, uh, be it 
for say religion caste gender and what not right and we've also seen you know what uh, kind of ugly forms it could sort of take um so you along with priya ramani a journalist and you know nilafur venkatraman again a journalist writer right so three of you came together and started india love project uh, can you tell me like what was this um all about and how did this idea come into play so uh, you know in a country that we saw as being increasingly fractured by um religion and fake news related to interfaith yeah. love we we saw india love project as an attempt at unity a chronicle of love outside the shackles of faith caste ethnicity and uh, gender so we carry first person accounts or narratives from offspring of couples uh, who who surmount these hurdles uh, and that and that reveals to us uh, in fact the possibilities of love without traditional uh, straitjackets right. love that we hope can serve as a beacon um, of hope to others in the same situation now interfaith love of course is relatively rare in india mm-hmm. uh, in fact it's very rare <laughs> uh about 90 to 95% of marriages are within caste yeah. and uh, perhaps uh only about 2% of marriages uh, of all marriages in india mm-hmm. are interfaith so now that's just an estimate but that's there was only one study which actually estimated this okay but these are still large numbers you know 2% in india is still a, a very quite large a huge number and and such mm-hmm. yeah and such marriages are more prevalent than we imagined mm-hmm. so we hope that you know india love project can inspire yeah. encourage and guide those who uh, uh, choose this path right uh, we launched it right after if you remember uh, the tanishq ad oh, yeah. was there was uh, such an uproar right i mean when that ad came out yeah. and uh, i mean i at yeah. least still date i don't understand what was really wrong with that ad that they had to really take it down literally but yeah mm-hmm. well it was a a, a muslim uh, you know mother in law going out of uh, going out of a way for her yeah. hindu daughter in law and the only point of objection there was that the daughter in law was hindu <laughs> uh, and that was about it yeah. so you know we all three of us uh, co-founders we've always felt very strongly about these blatantly mm-hmm. fake narratives and politically yeah. motivated hate mongering around interfaith love marriages in india which has been rising this, this hate mongering has been rising a lot now we know this is false mm-hmm. um uh, you know in in 2020 the government itself told parliament that there was no such thing mm-hmm. uh, as a love jihad uh, a term that has been very popularly been used right. and is now regarded almost as fact mm-hmm. but this is a, it, this is a, a fake term the entire concept is mm-hmm. fake because um, the campaigns like so called love jihad uh, are merely excuses to snatch agency from women yeah. uh, strengthen the hold of patriarchy mm-hmm. patriarchy and uh, essentially perpetuate uh, stereotypes and lies mm. so as this love jihad nonsense worsened we you know in, imagine this place where couples who push the these boundaries uh, could share their stories and um, simply uh, insp- inspire others like i said and simply make us all feel much uh, better about love um now love jihad of course has been weaponized and normalized uh, at least five state governments i mm-hmm. think have have brought in laws to uh, hobble mm. interfaith marriages right. Uh, even though none of these laws appear to be legally or constitutionally uh, valid, valid. Had, yeah so anyway yeah but the bottom line of course is that we thought what better way to counter something that is fake with something that is real and nothing could be more real than the stories on india love project and and the acceptance of this uh, india love project has been immense right I, i mean i think you started only in like say late 2020 end of the year i guess 
and the number of yeah. stories that are already on the platform i think it just ranges like uh, you know across everything right uh, at least i see that you know starting from where you know all three of you put this thing together to where it has come now uh, there's so many people who are coming forward to actually share their stories and what they've gone through and you know where things stand today with them right yeah um yeah the response was uh, overwhelming in mm. fact uh, initially yeah. uh, and it still continues what has happened now is sometimes we find some some people who um, the thing is you know the stories that appear in india love project is um, uh, they're only about uh, 200 to 300 words uh, because uh, you know because instagram uh, you don't have all that much space mm-hmm. but those 2 to 300 words um, reflect sometimes years of struggle uh, and uh, and great uh, uh, you know uh, mental torture for many of the couples uh, involved most of them usually have a line somewhere saying that after years or, or after months of trauma we have prevailed Correct. um uh, you know and we continued and some of them don't find closure because in sometimes parents just do not accept right but many of them have actually because it's india indian couples always want parental approval so they tend to somehow work at it work at it yeah. many of them have there are very poignant stories of showing up with the child at the parents mm-hmm. house not getting accepted mm-hmm. uh, and going back again and again until there is acceptance yeah and, and this is such um, a good outlet at least to come forward and share what they're going through right yes uh, and in fact today's story i was just reading today's story which went yeah. up and um, this another family again you know this is a hindu christian uh, story and they said that of course they faced opposition from their parents but they were inspired they said interestingly yeah. by india love project and the stories that were there uh, to persevere uh-huh. when it when things look very difficult for them How beautiful uh, so we also offer uh, apart from of course this kind of inspiration we also offer direct counseling mm-hmm. to people who are in interfaith relationships okay. but uh, don't know how to take this to the next level but want to take it uh, to uh, to marriage uh, so we have uh, uh, you know uh, people who volunteer sometimes uh, many couples themselves serve as counselors and say that we are happy to share our experiences with other couples uh, so a, a lovely little community has been created here uh, there are lawyers and there are counselors who uh, pro bono offer their services to anybody who's und- undergoing Uh, uh, who is in a who, who sort of needs help, right? With whatever support that can be given. Help, exactly. I see. Okay. Yeah. So that's where it is, right? Right. So, in one of your articles, Summer, um, you know, you say that recall heritage of love and tolerance, and you know, this was the article uh, which was an open letter to your daughter, and I went through that, and um, you know, I felt that yeah, this is getting more and more relevant in today's times, right? And again, I just wanted to like quote what Martin Luther King had once said that you know, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear, right? So mm-hmm. I want to know from yeah. you, like, how do you try and find optimism, you know, amidst all this noise, all this chaos that we see, and and I just feel that it's just growing over time, right? so i i would go very much by what you said um about martin luther king uh because we have certainly decided to you know stick with love uh, and hope um and that's what we do we are helped greatly by the fact that we live where we do which is in a corner of uh, bangalore which is completely multicultural okay. where uh, communities live with each other all our buildings all around us um uh, people of all faiths live together yeah. uh you know we have hindu muslim christian um 
my daughter uh, has two best friends one is muslim one is christian so this has allowed her she's 12 years old this has allowed her to um, imbibe the best of so many cultures right. all around mm-hmm. and we have found that when you're forced to live together you tend to be far less uh, uh, you know extremist or bigoted in your thoughts because you learn to adjust mm-hmm. and you learn to understand people who are around you and whom you live mm-hmm. with uh, and who you encounter every day right and uh, and 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 we believe that people are, are, are in 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 a sense people uh, tend to be uh, good uh, and um, when you live close to people who are not like you and you find small little gestures even a smile in the morning yes. when you talk to the same person in the whatsapp group yeah. food comes across uh, from uh, you know from uh, from from your neighbor right. all this uh, helps you um, uh, just be a little you know, more open minded uh, right with in, like you open minded and to be just friendly with others right. and uh, just be nice and uh, utilize all the love that's all uh, that's around right. you right so um, so i think our optimism comes very much from uh, where we live from the people we live amongst mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that we may not all have the same same political viewpoints or the same um, uh, values but uh, there certainly things we share and i think we focus on the things that uh, we share right. rather than the things that uh, uh, divide us and i think uh, with a little adjustment it's it's certainly very possible uh, not to just to live together yeah. but to uh, enjoy living with each other i mean we could not think of living now in an area with just one community because we've been living now for the last uh, decade yeah. in an area like this and we would never trade it for anything i know no just a little more kindness towards each other i guess right um, and understanding yeah absolutely so summer you're also like a visiting lecturer at uh, university of california berkeley fellow at the neiman foundation uh, harvard university you have authored two books you write columns for publication houses uh, you know you do like n number of things so how do you like manage to do it all and you know be really good at whatever that you do uh, no first of all i mean i was a visiting lecturer sure. uh, and i was a fellow i'm no longer mm-hmm. i do all this because i don't have a full time job uh, i'm i think quite unemployable at this point <laughs> of time given the state of the indian media uh, so so that helps a lot so i work from home yeah. uh so that makes it uh, very much uh, easier uh, very much easier to uh, do different things uh, of course the disadvantages are that when you work from home uh, uh, your your weekends and work days are pretty much the same exactly. there are no <laughs> boundaries in, in that sense yeah but i think if you if you enjoy what you do and you're committed to what you do i think then it's quite uh, easy so all these things are you know are different uh, um are are different uh, slots so to uh-huh. say in my in my work day so it's not particularly um, that dif- different it's of course you have to compartmentalize your mind uh, a bit right which i do mm-hmm. uh, you know so writing is very different from the editing that you do yeah. uh, and uh, the columns that i write you know tend to range um uh, are quite diverse because they tend to range from the in the state of society to politics to uh, what i've been cooking right. uh, so i just as you learn, tend to if you if you can compartmentalize all these things it's really not that difficult <laughs> sure so i i actually want to chat with you about your love for cooking and food right uh, so every article that you've written about food 
has such a great story behind it. I should tell you, uh, you know, be describing how a chilli traveled all the way from Manipur to Bangalore, and then you know, then giving the recipe for it. Uh, also, be it you know how different cuisines ended up being merged to elevate like an ordinary dish, uh, or the other story, uh, which is like one of my favorites that I read. Uh, you know, of your articles is like how a chance encounter with some old inland letters gave you the idea to spin another dish, right? So. Where does this love for cooking come from, and and the way you sort of you know spin that story or that kind of storytelling that you do with your you know food related articles, right? Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? So, um, yeah. So it's um, it's interesting that you ask this because uh, these um, uh, these columns that I write basically are basically ramblings. <laughs> I have to. Say you know these are rambling, okay. and I'm just uh, I'm just lucky, and I'm just lucky and happy that people actually read mm-hmm. them and seem to enjoy yeah. them. Um, um, but uh, yeah, they are all uh, at, at at the core. It comes from uh, um, a love for food, mm-hmm. uh, and that is because um, uh, you know I've been cooking ever since uh, uh, I left home. I used to cook at home also. I was very lucky to have a mother who um, me and my brother we were two boys at home who were always. Uh, um, who were made to work uh, in the house, uh-huh. uh, and uh, it was very clear that uh, there was going to be uh, sons were not going to get uh, discounted uh, free pass right. uh, to be in many families. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we come from a family where uh, um, women always got uh, the got pride of place. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, uh, uh, the house that my father built uh, was named after the daughter he never had. Uh, okay. He had two sons, but the okay. house was named after <laughs> sure. the, the name that he had reserved for his daughter. So, uh, so, so that was the background. So, in the sense that uh, there was no, uh, we were uh, there was no difference in our family between men and women. Everyone was expected mm-hmm. to uh, pitch in. So, I cooked, uh, of course, because I I like to eat very much. Uh, my my family and friends like to eat. Um, and I like it that my wife gets very well excited when I cook, <laughs> and I like it that my cooking has you know it's not made me not wealthy, yeah. but it's happy, happy, healthy, and wise definitely. <laughs> sure. So I like that. And entertaining yeah. but, for but us, I think, you know, entertaining for us those who read about your stories. <laughs> that yes, somehow that, that happened to be. I, I I suddenly have people coming up sometimes to me in malls, etc., saying, "Are you the guy who yeah. writes that uh, funny cooking column?" Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, yeah, and I actually never thought it would be anything like right. this. But it's been running for more than a decade mm-hmm. now. Uh, and I got converted into a book as well. And uh, the, the book launch was wonderful because I did the uh, tour of five cities where I was, you know, cooking live before audiences <laughs> in bookstores and something that I'd never done. Okay. So it was quite challenging and, and, and I loved it. Yeah. But this obsession with food actually has, uh, has something to do with my upbringing. I come from a family which is very strong, uh, you know, on mm-hmm. food. Uh, and I grew up eating, uh, uh, for example, paya, which is you know a spicy soup of goat trotters or hooves for breakfast in in the Deccan, mm-hmm. um, um, and it was a very uh, it was a very backward place, but it was also you know a very romantic place, a, a land of black soil, mm-hmm. uh, the backwardness that I spoke about, and bhanamati, which is the local uh, dark art of black. Candy. Right. Uh, and this was the 70s. So it was a very slow, dreamy time. There was no television. Uh, you know, yesterday was much like today. <laughs> and today would be much the same as tomorrow. And there wasn't much entertainment. Uh, 
you would play marbles on the streets yeah. and uh, used to walk a, a sheep down the dusty uh, mm. back streets mm. uh, I, we did have a sheep um, you know which used back to then. wander around the house <laughs> okay yeah, and curating my mother by dropping <laughs> leaving droppings in the living room so um, so food played a big part of this and uh, but i have to say that food uh, was always very much had to do with uh, uh, animals uh, we were there were no vegetarians in my family okay so when i when i got married my it turned out that my wife was um, uh, completely vegetarian oh i see so that was uh, that that took some time to adjust to my family took some time to adjust to sure. it sure uh, but 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 finally i, I now can cook vegetables uh, Equ- as as, well. as equally exciting as the, the other non vegetarian dishes could get <laughs> that i don't know but uh, i managed sure So in in that case uh, Safar what was the experience like you know when you were authoring the book um the married man's guide to creative cooking and other dubious adventures right so what was that like yeah. you know you did tell me that yeah, you had like this tour and you were you know trying to cook dishes in the bookstores and stuff like that but can you tell me what was the entire experience like So it wasn't very difficult because as a, uh, this book was based a lot on my columns. A large part of the book was based on my mm-hmm. columns. Uh, so I had to rework, rework many of those columns, uh, put in new bits, uh, give the entire exercise uh, some coherence, so that um, uh, there was a, 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 a unifying theme behind the mm-hmm. book. And that theme essentially was about why men should right. cook. So apart from the fact. that you know this whole uh, um, the, the fact that it was fun for mm-hmm. me i strongly strongly believe that uh, uh, cooking is extremely important to the indian man yeah. specifically yeah. Uh, and that is because you know there's there's this whole mera raja beta syndrome well, in india where yeah with the boy gets the pride of place yeah. and i believe that a lot of that can be addressed if um, uh, so cooking is actually a, a metaphor it's a metaphor for um, household work yeah. you know Uh, and that then that has completely uh, the, the the indian male is one of the most privileged um, males on this planet we tend to and there are statistics about this we uh, do far less house, houseworks than uh, uh, men from even countries uh-huh. where men we believe are privileged for example okay. places like uh, japan turkey etc yeah we do the least amount among, <laughs> among the least amount of housework okay. uh, indian mm-hmm. men so i think it's very important that um, if people if if young bo- uh, boys are, learn, are taught to cook they will be far more uh, accepting of doing household duties right. and from there on uh, not just sharing household duties but uh, um, just being equal partners right just being equal partners yeah exactly yeah that 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 your spouse will is an equal partner right and uh, it's not uh, just you and your career and everything about you that should get priority but it has to be uh, shared between uh, both people i agree i mean at least to what you said because i think there's inherently so much of this unconscious bias that's set in right like rooted for ages together yeah. i guess that uh, you know beat cooking then automatically you look at the girl or the woman you know to just sort of you know take charge <laughs> but yeah that's yeah. the thing but one last question summer before i let you go so i want to know like who your biggest influences have been uh, you know in terms of whatever that you've been doing so far i cannot say that i have any <laughs> you know specific <laughs> heroes in my sure. life or anything of the sort yeah. so uh, i don't have any specific uh, you know heroes mm-hmm. or uh, influences influences obviously you know one, your one's parents tend to be influences when you get married your your spouse mm-hmm. tends to be a big influence mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then, of course, now when you have a child, your child tends to be a big influence. But that's for the family. Right. But outside, of course, there are people whose work I admire, etc. But there's there's nobody who's really outstanding. Uh, but I have to say that if 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 it if the things something that really has inspired mm-hmm. me, it's been it's always been by living in a country like India, because when you see the kind of uh, um, um, uh, hardships that people go through. Uh, a, of course, you you feel extremely lucky at all that you have, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you see how people approach their lives with uh, very often with a with a smile and such uh, generosity right. in India. Yeah. Um, so that has always been my biggest influence. Has actually been the people of this country, mm-hmm. uh, who I think um, are uh, just remarkable in the way they bear up to um, uh, hardship. Right. Um, so uh, if you were to ask me, I, I think in general. People tend to inspire me most, uh, more than individuals in general. Well, that's wonderful, Samar. Thank you so much, and you know this has been such a delightful conversation. And you know I so look forward to your work. You know to continue to enlighten us, and you know very sure that you would continue to break barriers. And this has been an absolute pleasure to me. Thank you again. No, thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you.